Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to The Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. It's election day as we record this, and I'm joined, as always, by Kelly. Kelly, how you doing? I'm good. I'm casting my vote. We're kind of in this Schrodinger's democracy moment right now. Don't really know how things are going to shake out. Pod won't come out for another day, so we're just in this limbo period. Yeah, so we're going to try to mostly avoid election day content because whatever we predict, I think, will end up not coming true. However, I can just briefly say the videos of election workers being verbally abused are already floating out, and I would say good luck to them. I mean, the machines are going down, and these guys are being treated like the king of the mules when he's like oh you just vote normally and everyone's like i don't trust you so i think it's gonna be a, hopefully election workers will get a nice break on wednesday so with that in mind kelly i thought we'd do a little counter programming i came up with a little segment called bad and down bad where <laughs> we check in well i do my internet perusings and i get like sort of like a potpourri of these right-wing characters and often things are looking pretty grim for them so hopefully if you're a democrat and you're feeling down about the election day results maybe this will be a little glimmer of hope how's that sound that sounds great do you have any news on friend of the show scott adams author of dilbert and extremely divorced character yes i do and i gotta say it, we talk about scott adams yes as you said he's the mind behind dilbert he is sort of the real life dilbert i guess and this is a guy, I remember I was a kid, I'd read my Dilbert compilations, I would read Adventures, Dogbert would go to Albonia, there was a point where some dinosaurs lived with them. <laughs> this was before Scott Adams started writing about just like CRT in the workplace. But Scott, as you said, he was married to a very lovely lady, quite, I would say, a much younger woman, and now he's getting divorced and he's dealing with some, seemingly some health issues as well. And so I caught this video of him where he's saying he's contemplating, I guess, taking his own life at some point if things don't get better. But most notably, he says, I'm going to get into heroin. And, and so we can play the segment here. I'm not going to do this two years. <laughs> I'll do this one year. Uh, I'll give you one year with this amount of pain. And then next, I'm not going to do two years. Promise you I won't do two. Now, that doesn't mean I'll kill myself. It could just mean I'll go on different drugs, right? But, you know, legal, illegal, whatever I have to do. Heroin, I would definitely do heroin. End it now. Somebody's suggesting that I kill myself right away. Thank you. Appreciate it. So things are not going great for Dilbert. Just recently, he kind of went on sort of a, a men going their own way type rampage about how men aren't getting what they want out of the dating marketplace as well. Yeah, absolutely. So something to keep in mind here is Scott Adams is mid to late 60s at this point. He also lives in a house shaped like the Dilbert's head. And I believe one of his ex-wives is an assistant for him. Wait, is that for real? Yeah, no, he totally does. There's a phenomenal Bloomberg profile of the day-to-day minutia of him living in a Dilbert head. You're right. This isn't 
really a man who has, uh, I would say, very relatable life experiences. He's on a very uncharted path. So I think when people read his missives about... He's a Sigma male as they call it. Yeah, exactly. He's on his own path, and there's not really much wisdom to draw from this. I, that's what I want people to take away when he's grim posting about how marriage is doomed and women switch to a pain model, which is something that he tweeted this weekend about how after marriage, women start consciously inflicting pain. You have to remember that this is a very specific person's very specific experience. So I don't want everyone to wallow with Mr. Scott Adams. I just looked up this Dilbert house since you mentioned it and i hate to do a fact check on you kelly but his house is weird looking but it does not like dilbert but there is a castle turret attached to the house that looks like dilbert so he lives in a dilbert defensive fortification okay okay oh i'm very sorry that's a necessary so fact the, check the rest of the house, it's a totally normal <laughs> thing it's just a turret wait 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 well i think this is our parting of ways because goddamn, does this castle turret look like dilbert's head it's the oh the, the turret looks like dilbert the rest of the house but he doesn't live in the turret the turret is just adjacent <laughs> Exactly. Okay. It's good that we've got the nuance here. So the other bit of potpourri I wanted to mention today is checking in on Laura Loomer. Obviously, she's a anti-Muslim hate figure, hates a whole lot of people. And of course, earlier this year, her congressional campaign went up in flames. And so she's looked around and she says, who is to blame for this? Is it my incendiary remarks? Is it my history of stunts like chaining myself to Twitter headquarters? No, it's fellow fameball Milo Yiannopoulos, who, as he was working for seemingly interning for Marjorie Taylor Greene, she claims to have proof these text messages that Milo was sabotaging her campaign in some sort of unclear ways in an effort to keep her from getting to Congress and hanging out with Marjorie Taylor Greene as sort of like it was seen as though like we don't want you hanging out with us kind of a thing. <laughs> Mommy can only have one favorite. <laughs> Yeah. And so I think ultimately, I think she lost by six or seven points in the primary. Now, that's the Milo stand vote out there. But basically, as a result of this, Ali Alexander has also, of course, January 6th protest organizer, Kanye superfan who's been getting into really some crazy anti-Semitism lately as a result of the Kanye stuff. But basically, they had this live stream and they were kind of hashing these things out. And Laura was like, oh, Milo's been broke all the time. I lent him all this money. And then Milo sends a text to the host of the show. And he says, Laura has an impeccable track record of failure, failure to sustain friendships, failure to keep employees and failure to win elections. No one can stand to be around her for long. And then he also accused Alexander of being a pedophile. But this is Milo, who, of course, his initial downfall was being caught on tape defending sexual relationships between adult men and underage boys. So call is coming from inside the house here. It's very interesting how those accusations always turn around like one or two specific topics with them. That is a great point. I should say Ali has denied this charge, but this is just to give folks kind of a glimpse into the sort of knives out world of these internet fame balls who are just like frick saying one another as they wait, I think, for the Trump campaign to start and maybe for their next invitation to speak on a college campus. This has been bad and down bad. <laughs> so, Will, 2022, Biden's been here about half the time, two years to go, unless... Republicans pull off a little something they've got in the works. Can you tell me about these impeachment plans that are starting to bubble up? Like I said, we're trying to avoid predicting what happened on Election Day, but I think it's pretty clear that Republicans are going to win the House. And so if that happens, I wanted to bring to people's attention something that will almost certainly happen, which is that the House Republicans will immediately move to impeach Joe Biden and be successful in the House. I don't think the Senate will impeach him. And I think this is something people who kind of don't have your face up against this stuff every day may not realize. But I mean, the impeachment stuff is going to start pretty much immediately. And they really don't have much of a pretext for it. But I think Kevin McCarthy is really not going to be able to stop them. 
them, certainly if he wants to stay speaker. So I think it's going to kick off and they have plenty of avenues to do it. Absolutely. This is this tactic that you see time and time again from Republicans. If Democrats have anything on them, they turn around and try and manufacture an equal and opposite investigation or criminal proceeding. So proceedings into the Trump family and their dealings, well, they turn around and start talking about the forthcoming charges against Hunter Biden. You see this sort of thing where if Trump was impeached not once but twice, well, they have to get two or more strikes on Biden so that they feel like the score is even and we got you right back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I should say here, I'm drawing a lot on this Atlantic story from October by Barton Gelman about the different avenues Republicans might take for impeachment. And in that story, he says, he quotes Ted Cruz on his podcast talking about, oh yeah, we're definitely going to impeach Biden. And he says, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So look, has Joe Biden been caught withholding weapons from Ukraine in exchange for a Hunter Biden investigation or doing January 6th? No. But nevertheless, they sort of see it as it's time to roll this out. So a couple of the options that they could impeach over, there's a lot of talk of impeaching Biden and the DHS secretary over the border. Now, traditionally, you don't do impeachments because someone is doing something, the president just doing something you don't like policy-wise, but this is the big one. And I think that also leads into the fact that I think another big aspect of this is going to be a ton of impeachment of cabinet secretaries. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right to point out that there's not really any firm charges, that these are more impeachment proceedings about a topic, about a vibe. It's really, it's sort of the Facebook post of an impeachment proceeding. I remember back during the Obama years, seeing people on my Facebook feed saying that he should be impeached for the killings of babies. Babies, by that they mean that abortion is and was legal. They latch onto a topic, a grievance that really resonates with them, and that's enough. If it feels criminal, then, well, why shouldn't it be? There's kind of this implication, especially with the immigration stuff, that it is like part of a plot to somehow weaken America, and maybe you can go off of that. But obviously, the big one in the room here is, of course, the laptop from hell, the infamous Hunter Biden laptop. It's been the grist for so many movies and mock trials on Fox Nation. And now it's probably going to be the basis of the impeachment. There is a bit of a problem, which is that, of course, even the laptop from hell story is sort of so convoluted that Republicans still haven't been able to quite tie Joe Biden to it, despite the efforts of hangers on like Tony Bobolinsky. And, and so actually, as we record this, the Daily Mail has a new whistleblower claiming that Joe Biden is the big guy. He's the guy making all the money. Now, look, is this guy pictured in a dark room? Yes. So you can't see his face? Yes. Does he look exactly like Tony Bobolinsky's profile? Yes. This is sort of breaking <laughs> news, which is why we're not totally on top of it here. But so Bobolinsky is, this, of course, a former Hunter associate who I think we can expect to see probably testifying in the impeachment. But Kelly, I have kind of a dark horse for impeachment, if I can put that in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. Let's lay the heaven this into existence. <laughs> the sphere. So what I think might do it is the politicization of the FBI. And this is sort of a quiet story that hasn't made it much out of the right-wing media. But there's a couple options here. And one of them I wrote about last week, which is this idea that the FBI is cracking down on these abortion clinic protesters, people who glue gates shut or block doors or allegedly shove clinic escorts. And so this has been a big thing on the right, this idea that it's so unfair to arrest these people who have been accused of breaking the law and kind of an echo of the Russiagate arrests or the January 6th arrest where it's like, hey, these are white Republicans. You can't arrest them roughly. Right. Yeah. And what's so funny is you see this rhetoric around, oh, they're conducting midnight raids on pro-life activists. And first of all, you look at the so-called raid. They got arrested just like other people who break the law. But you have to ask, OK, what was he arrested for? And it's just consistently, oh, he's accused of pushing down a senior citizen who is acting as a clinic escort. In one case in, I believe, D.C., a 
pro-life activist was accused of having like a whole bunch of fetuses in her apartment. That is correct. Yeah, it's a it's a gruesome story. Yeah, thank you, because I was actually like actively blocking that out of my mind. But these are real allegations against these folks. They're not being cracked down on because they dared to protest abortion rights. They are facing criminal charges. The other aspect of the politicization of the FBI is that there are these sort of myriad mysterious FBI whistleblowers that have been championed by Republicans in the Senate and the House. And this kind of reminds me a lot of the release the memo type stuff back during the Russia investigation, where it's like kind of this mysterious figure has come forward and said that the FBI is so corrupt, but we're kind of going to be very vague about what the allegations are. So Dan Bongino, friend of the pod, <laughs> a talk radio host, has really latched onto these FBI whistleblowers. And so as I do, both out of my interest and my job, I was like, all right, what are these guys actually saying? And so you dig into it and kind of the main FBI whistleblower is this guy who I think is on an FBI SWAT team, but, but somehow he would be involved in, in FBI arrests. And he was basically mad he had to go arrest a January 6th guy. And then he was just like, well, why don't we go arrest child porn guys instead? And they said, well, why don't we do the January 6th guy today? And then he got really <laughs> mad about it. Would you believe that's also something that they do? Right. Okay. So overthrowing the government, that is also a crime. What I think is especially interesting, though, is basically this guy's complaint, the House Republicans released a report that was like last week that was really padded out with all these. It was like, oh, a thousand page report about FBI corruption. But it ended up being like 30 pages about that. And then just like a bunch of copies of letters they had written. And it's like, well, you just wrote that yourself. It was all the CC emails just printed out end to end. It's like when you're really last minute filing a paper for college and it's like uh here's my bibliography triple space i will say free tip for folks if you make the font size of your periods larger it'll space it out in a way <laughs> that can't be detected by your professor the fbi whistleblower though his main issue is like a paperwork one where he's mad that the january 6 cases were farmed out to the regional offices the people who were being arrested lived rather than just all being done in the washington office well because there's so many of them right? there's like a <laughs> thousand of them exactly yes yes they should have you on fox news and so so this is the issue is that essentially they're just like well this is unfair like i'm just a florida guy i just i don't want to do this and it's like well i don't know what to tell you you're part of this federal organization and so this i mean really when you look into it it is kind of this like paperwork thing where they say this shouldn't have been farmed out well i don't think that really resonates with people but i do think if you kind of dress it up as like fbi persecution or something i think that one that could pick up absolutely well i'm sure they will keep that very soberly in mind when the prosecution of Joe Biden is on the stand. Yes, I really think this is going to come, I would say, basically as soon as the next Congress is sworn in, presuming Republicans take the House, I think within a few weeks we could see it. Right now we're seeing Republican leadership saying, well, we'd have to investigate first, which is, of course, a very clever thing to say if you want it to look legitimate. You don't want to say now, yeah, we're going to impeach him. But I think that is what is ahead. Okay, Kelly, you've got a disturbing story for us about some pastors who have some big ideas. That's right. Will, have you ever wanted your pastor to also be kind of into cosplaying, to have kind of a creepy name, sort of something that you would expect to be haunting a graveyard around <laughs> Halloween time. Well, let me introduce you to a coalition of far-right preachers. They call themselves the Black Robe Regiment. Now, why would somebody pick just such an ostentatiously creepy name. Yeah. yeah, I think I saw them play the Black Cat in <laughs> 2007. Yeah, it's kind of niche metal. Most people would have heard of them, but if you're really into the vinyl pressings like me, no, I wish it were that, but it's actually this group. It's got a lot of ties to Michael Flynn, and these are sort of Christian nationalist pastors who want to flex their political muscle. The name comes from a Revolutionary War era myth about preachers who've fought in the revolution 
Revolution, the thing is that there's not really much evidence that this group ever existed. Most of the stories about them have been debunked, and even the name appears to be drawn from a misquotation. But this group isn't letting historical records stop them. There's really great reporting from Vice out this week, and it's documenting this group's efforts to install at least one black robe regiment affiliated pastor in each little voting district. They want to get themselves elected to school boards and become members of their local GOP and really put Christian nationalists talking points at the forefront of local politics. So here we're talking about this Vice article by Dave Gilbert that just came out about the Black Robe Regiment. Now, these are guys who, it's very interesting. So as you said, their whole thing is like, in the Revolutionary War, there were these pastors called the Black Robe Regiment. They would get their flocks together and they would all join the revolution, go fight the British. And now I've run into these guys at a lot of events. They've been at some QAnon-related stuff. Greg Locke, who's kind of a a very prominent right-wing pastor, is a member of this group. I saw them at the Tulsa reawaken america thing it's funny that this dave gilbert thing reveals that whole origin story is just fake because i've had to sit there and listen to these guys like oh yeah this pastor did this it was so cool in the revolution and then as this article reveals it's just it's hokum it's just made up there's so much frankly revolutionary war fantasy stuff floating around i've been kind of steeped in it the past week a lot of this myth actually comes from radio host glenn beck who was big in promoting this idea of a black robe regiment should rise up again i spent a horrible couple hours last week engaging with the Rush Revere saga. Oh, nice. This is, of course, Rush Limbaugh's like middle grade book series about how he was actually, if he were Paul Revere, what he would have done in the revolution. If I was Paul Revere, Bunker Hill would have gone down different. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. These are people just kind of wish casting themselves into revolutionary war situations. They're doing self-insert fan fiction because they want to believe that they're fighting a revolution right now and that they're going to be the brave new leaders driving their flocks into battle. Unfortunately, what that really looks like is these weirdos showing up at the these MAGA roadshows, like you mentioned, Reawaken America. That's the tour that Michael Flynn and Roger Stone have been on for months. And this has actually been a recruiting ground for Black Robe Regiment, according to Vice. Apparently, in the back rooms there, they're trying to conscript local pastors, and they're making some headway. There's about 150 who this summer signed a pledge to join the group and If you take the group at its word, they claim to have chapters in 25 states. So that is, if we take them at their word, something of a ground game going on. And these are folks who, again, really want to be involved in local politics. It's interesting the hold that Revolutionary War myths have on our current politics. The other obvious example here is the 3% or militia, which refers to the idea that only 3% of colonists rose up during the American Revolution. Also a myth. And so the Black Robe Regiment, as you said, I mean, these guys are very hard right, pro-Trump guys. And it's sort of one of these things that we often talk about here where they speak very like militantly and about the importance of rising up in a revolutionary way. And then it's one of those things that makes you go, hmm, well, that's not good. <laughs> it's not great. Several of these guys were in D.C. and spoke at the protests that led up to January 6th, although none of them have been charged as far as I know. And I think the appeal here for pastors from these conferences that I've seen is pretty obvious, which is that like if you're a pastor and it's like, actually, pastors are the most important people in their communities and should be sort of like quasi-political theocratic leaders. You might say, oh, sounds good to me. Yeah, absolutely. Detecting a strong pro-pastor bias in this movement, I'm so glad you bring up this January 6th connection because these people were all around D.C., not just like 
during January 6th, but you remember those couple weeks beforehand, like starting maybe December 20th, and it was just protest after protest in D.C., increasingly more militant, increasingly more violent. And according to Vice, this movement actually really got its foothold in those weeks. I'm going to quote from them. It said, after that week in D.C., the leader, William Cook, had a clear goal in mind for his new group. Quote, within the next couple years, we would like to see the Black Robe Regiment formed in all 50 states, consisting of at least two pastors within each political jurisdiction of America who are asserting their influence within local government and also the influence of their flock. And this is him talking in a webinar this August. So this is a group that saw what was going on in D.C. during these tumultuous protests, during the immediate moments before January 6th, and said, I like that. (laughs) I want to be on the forefront of that. I think it's an ominous development. And this is, of course, occurring at a time where we're seeing more and more Republican leaders who are generally on the fringe, although Marjorie Taylor Greene is obviously a huge deal in the Republican Party, increasingly say, like, yes, we are Christian nationalists. This is a Christian nationalist movement. And of course, I think the Black Robe Regiment sort of seeks to be an armed wing of that. Absolutely. Oh, and of course, it goes without saying that there's some pretty undiscussed guys, the anti-Semitism in here. Vice has a pastor named David McClellan. They asked about anti-Semitic comments he made, and he just said, oh yeah, Judaism, that's an antichrist religion. <laughs> he praised Kanye West, who said, oh, the whole concept of anti-Semitism is big now. So this is not a group that's going to be especially welcoming to diversity of viewpoints, not really here for the free speech, let everybody speak on college campuses. They know what they want, and it's pretty narrowly hard right Christian nationalism. All right, Will, who do we have as our guest this week? All right, I'm very excited about this week's guests. It's two of the hosts of QAnon Anonymous, the podcast I think many of our listeners will be familiar with covering QAnon, but also just other right-wing internet dystopia stuff. This week we have two of the hosts, Julian Field and Annie Kelly. They have a new series within their podcast called Man Clan, which discusses sort of right-wing machismo movements, this idea of these kind of quasi-fascist bodybuilding groups, guys who like eat liver sauce or what have you. They really get into the guts of it. They did all the burpees required to join the man clan. So (laughs) I'm very excited to talk with them about it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right, this week on Fever Dreams, we're going to get pumped up. We're joined by QAnon Anonymous co-hosts Annie Kelly and Julian Field here to talk about their new series, Man Clan, on the esoteric bodybuilders and neo-fascists and men going their own way of the right-wing men's movement. Julian and Annie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. 
No problem. I'm here to help you build your tea. <laughs> yeah, me and Julian are happy to provide this consulting service for podcasts that worry they don't have enough alpha energy. I'm always looking for reasons to build my tea. <laughs> I will be stuck in the Randy Savage voice for the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, thanks for having us on. <laughs> so the series is called Man Clan. It's available on your Patreon at patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous. But it really tackles all kinds of different weird internet men. What are you all looking at with this series and what inspired you to do it? Well, I did my PhD about anti-feminist digital networks and i guess i wasn't really looking at influencers so much then more i was looking at the move from blogs and forums to social media to sites like youtube and twitter and things like that and when i finished that i decided i suppose to take a break from one of the nastiest corners of the internet and just move to something refreshing and cool like QAnon. <laughs> but julian yeah had the idea that we should revisit i suppose because he was just like it's so much weirder than you even know because of course in the time since i finished my phd which is in 2020 i guess this masculinity influencer market the the guru market had become so saturated that it's not enough to just say you need to eat steak and yeah to own the libs anymore now it has to be raw testicles and things like this so yeah we're trying to take an expansive approach i suppose to all the various ways which if you're a young fellow looking to looking to assert your identity all the various messages you're getting. Yeah, I think the series sort of looks at the various identities, as you say, that a young man who maybe gets too deep into the right-wing internet can pick up. Julian, you've been following these guys for a while. You've been twitching about them. That is to say, on Twitch, but maybe also twitching about them. What is it about these characters that, that really sort of drives your brain crazy? I just, I find it fascinating, first of all, that we're in an era where you can watch someone's arc. Like, you can go on YouTube and follow 15 years of a person's life where they're kind of changing so much and they're going through their own process of exploration of ideas and trying to build their selves that they're then selling on to these young men or whatever. And they can barely hide the actual things that are happening with them, which I have a kind of voyeuristic relationship with that. And then things had just kind of reached for me a fever pitch with these guys, like the appearance of Liver King, I think, like snapped my brain. Liver King. He's just absolutely bloated on like human growth hormone. He looks like a kind of like a wrestling figurine and he's he's selling the idea that you should like never eat vegetables this kind of level of like one of the first videos that i saw of his he had set out all this raw stuff and then he had this wonderfully prepared salad in front of him and he start, opened the video by taking the entire salad bowl and throwing it behind him and <laughs> screaming in your face and then some other guys who had started as kind of relatively like milk toast kind of health perverts who were just like well you know i like to ritualistically enhance my manhood with other men on zoom it's straight don't worry and like <laughs> progress to saying stuff like well okay here i am ritualistically drinking my own pee and cum mixed together this is <laughs> the full moon is here and saying stuff like well a lot of straight men come to me and they've found a lot of new vigor in their life and i think one of the best practices ritualistically for a man to for a straight man to do is to allow another man to massage his prostate using his penis and so it's like just the level of like the extreme kind of claims that are being made but also just how far everyone has gone down their own rabbit holes like personally and they've reached a kind of like place of i think no return oftentimes some of them have come full circle we looked at elliot hulse who started as like a strength trainer 
and has become like essentially a Christian nationalist at this point. But he went through like the whole Manosphere phase, kind of just very intense misogyny. And now he's literally fighting like a Christian crusade against vice and even turning on people like Andrew Tate, who's another figure that's also like his appearance is definitely one of the horsemen of the apocalypse with Liver King. (laughs) This guy who, ex-kickboxer, who's just like constantly on like yachts and private jets and just shoving it in your face. You should be living like this, but you're a fucking loser and you're not a man until you, I mean, as he did, he set up like a literal stable of like cam girls. Like things have become more and more cartoonish and the Trump era was like just the beginning of going off the deep end for some of these guys. So I'm just fascinated with that. These kind of, these guys pushing it way too far and, and just the variety that there exists there and then how they're trying to kind of paper over their differences contradictions. So, okay. So I listened to this and I have to admit, I'm probably not the target demo for this. I'm not really into drinking my own pee, but clearly some people are. So who is like most likely to be lured down this path and to become an apostle of the liver king? Yeah, I think oftentimes it's just men. I mean, you could say, oh, young men who don't know better. And it's that's not really entirely true. I think like Elliot Hulse, for example, he built his audience starting with dads, right? So like dads who wanted to get back in shape, he would be like, well, let's go out to my strength camp. You're going to get outside. You're going to spend some time with other men. I'm going to be encouraging and you're going to do hard things. You're going to lift tires and do all this physical activity, which is fine. A sense of like isolation that people deal with today and especially young people who've never really known what the world was like before the phone. And so I think there's a certain amount of preying on that, right? But also, I think it's engaging with real issues that are not really often addressed, which is like the system just kind of getting worse and bleaker and more unreal, more virtual. And so a lot of people are are looking for ways. Unfortunately, they're looking into the screen for ways to get out of something that is kind of inherently represented by and kind of worsened by the screen. And so they end up following someone like Liver King, whose entire persona, by the way, was designed by a social media team. So he approached them before he ever posted. And a lot of the time, it's hard for people to see that someone is completely crafted because he's just entertaining or whatever, or he just makes them feel a certain way. And then Other guys, they maybe followed him at first because he helped them deadlift better. And now they're stuck in like the miasma of like MAGA stuff and Christian nationalism because they want to kind of define themselves, find an identity in a country and in a culture, I think even globally where we're told, make yourself. There is no culture anymore. Make yourself, craft yourself from bits and pieces, books you've read, of videos you've watched, find something that makes you unique, find something that satisfies you. But then at the same time, we're dealing with such, I think, profound despair and loneliness that oftentimes we are drawn to these more extreme things. I guess with these influencers who are selling you these very extreme lifestyles, like drinking your own pee or eating raw liver, you know, I'm never really particularly convinced that like 100% of their followers and subscribers are also following that lifestyle to the letter. I think people have this kind of quite ambiguous relationship with the influences they follow and even the influences they admire where the extremeness is what gets their attention I think Andrew Tate is actually a really good example of this and then they kind of like settle in they're not saying I believe every word that this man says but they're like yeah it's a bit cartoonish it's a bit extreme but there's something to it and I think that's probably if you had to poll every one of Andrew Tate's followers or Elliot Hulse or 
liver king. I imagine that is where most of them would fall on. There's something to it, but I wouldn't go to the extremes that he does. Annie, something I'm really curious, and you obviously did your PhD on these online man spaces, and they've been around for ages. You know, we've seen the men going their own way movement, the pickup artist movement, the incel movement. How do you think this particular moment with these, I, there's a lot of like TikTok grind set guys. How do you think that varies from what we saw maybe five years ago with online men's movements? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, one thing that my thesis had to end up accounting for, which I hadn't quite expected when I started it, was how many of those blogs and forums that I was tracking would end up embracing, I guess, kind of white nationalism in a word. And there was one site actually that didn't, that like sort of made a point of being like, no, we're just anti-feminists. We're not, we don't care about racial politics. That's not our interest. And they actually really suffered for it. They just lost a whole bunch of like readership and it's a bit of a graveyard now. So I guess what I think happened with the move to social media was these quite disparate anti-feminist places became a much more coherent, confident, far-right ideology. And I think there's lots of lots of reasons for that. I suppose probably the biggest change I have seen since, yeah, since I finished my PhD is how much more personality-based it is now. I guess I was still looking at these sites as kind of community hubs. And I think what changed dramatically is it became much less about hanging out in the comments section or in the forum and, yeah, more following this influencer on Instagram and YouTube and I guess creating a community around one single personality. They had their internet celebrities, the Manosphere, but it seems much more focused in that way, which I guess is less of an observation about anti-feminist politics and more about how social media has changed things in general. Why is so much of this stuff about food? It's livers, they don't like the soy, they want to eat hearts or whatever. I mean, where does the food fit into all this? I think there is a kind of aspect where it's the thing you can control, right? What goes into your body. It's like the final retreat into the body when the system is no longer offering opportunities or solutions or even acknowledgements that, yeah, we're feeling bad right now. And I, I do have to say that one of the, th the aspects of liberalism and the Democratic Party is that they are basically telling you, no, things are actually okay. If you keep voting for us, Things are, are going to continue to not be worse and you'll feel better and we'll be moving in a positive direction. But the reality is something way different, I think. The country has been kind of sold out from under the feet of a lot of people. And so there's an aspect of the right and selling you on stuff like food and fitness, which is the final like, no, 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 don't pay attention to the stuff that we've been doing, like Tucker Carlson marrying his dad married into the Swanson family that invented the TV dinner when he was 10. And so it's like he's the one to speak about America eating badly or whatever, or having bad habits like this, or kind of becoming essentially sedentary. So I think food, yeah, there's an aspect of it that is like the final thing that you can control. And it's a conveniently individualistic solution to a problem that is systemic, but nobody really wants to bring attention to that. They're either telling you that actually things are fine or, well, definitely don't think about like regulation or labor unions or any of these aspects. So obviously, I think the right is like first to the ground there because they're willing to be like, everything is fucked up. And then here's the solution. Food has always been an obsession 
for fascists and the body as a representation of the nation, the male body, that's also an aspect of fascism that has been persistent throughout the ages. Ironically, I think if they wanted to listen to some people they hate, if they could tune into like some body positive feminist podcast, they would recognize this as basically an eating disorder, right? The idea of food and control (laughs) and agency and all that. One thing I was wondering, so we're talking about very physical results that happen to people who follow this lifestyle model. I was wondering what happens to people's relationship when you commit 100% to the Sigma grind set alpha model and you start being standoffish and hostile to everyone. What happens to people who really buy this idea? Yeah, I mean, it's not good. I was interviewed for an article a while back which was based in the UK, but I imagine there's nothing that would stop the same effect be happening in the United States. And it was called YouTube Red Pilled the Love of My Life. And the journalist Hussein Kasvani had interviewed all of these women who had basically found that their boyfriends, husbands, I think even in some cases brothers, had begun consuming this yeah masculinist content and had just completely changed as people. I think because of the really shocking spate of incel violence and it's just those places are so extreme they're so dark and the violence that can spill out of them is also so extreme there can be a risk i often think when we talk about anti-feminist politics and masculinity influences where people want to focus on what's the worst that could happen what's the worst that one of these guys could do and obviously we've seen how bad that is and it's pretty horrible right but i sometimes worry that means that we're missing I guess the more ordinary, kind of low-level, uninteresting to terrorist experts violence that emanates from these places as well. It's something that whenever I'm interviewed by journalists wanting to know what's the incel threat, I try and stress the first people that they're a danger to are just women in their lives, sisters, girlfriends, mothers, which often doesn't really make it into the final cut. It's not really what they want to hear. But I think that's the more common danger, I think, from these places. Yeah, I think you get sold the idea that you're going to get more control in your life and that there's a kind of game being played, whether it's pickup artists or the way that supposed Marxist infiltration is happening in the culture around you. So you're being sold like, well, actually, you can keep yourself kind of safe from this and you can navigate this world successfully and go on to be happier, more wholesome, have a better body and treat women in ways where you'll find success, both with women and in kind of controlling your relationships or whether you choose to be a kind of trad calf or a player or whatever, these different kind of models of masculinity that are being sold to people. And when the rubber hits the road, obviously, that's just not how the world works, right? It's a kind of simplification, a virtualization often of one's relationship to the world. And so that's when I think things get bad is when you actually have to interact with human beings. And often, like Annie said, it's the people directly around you that are going to suffer from you being obsessed with these ideologies and ideas of the self and the other. Yeah, because I think so much of what pickup advice and sex and dating advice is teaching a lot of these guys to do is to essentially view every interaction that they have as this kind of vying for domination. So That never ends, essentially. In every interaction, initially with women, but also with men, you are constantly being taught to be alert and afraid of the fact that this person could dominate you, which doesn't really lead to vulnerable, open relationships or friendships. And I think it one really 
I think, quite tragic thing that a lot of these spaces that are very invested in masculinity and alpha masculinity, one trick that I think that they play on their audience, which you think for an audience who is so familiar with the concept of negging, they might see what's happening. But as far as I can tell, they very rarely do. But there'll just be this constant onslaught of this is what beta males are like. This is what blue pilled men are like. And just these kind of humiliating, exhausting kind of like descriptions of all the ways they're dominated by women, by other men, usually involves kind of like getting cheated on, this kind of like parade of misery. And of course, it's not just about kind of insulting the opponent, the political enemy. It's also a threat, I think, to their readership. It's like, this will be you if you don't follow this exact advice that I am giving you. And so it's kind of even as it promises to give you confidence, to give you mastery over everyone around you, it's actually just fostering a kind of deep insecurity, which you'll just keep on getting filled up every time you come back to that influencer or you come back to that site. So they're fostering this atmosphere of insecurity with their subscribers. I think that probably makes people want to hang on to them more to get validation. But what do these influencers actually get? I mean, do they make a lot of money? Is there a good economy around this internet circle? It is definitely rife with multi-level marketing, selling of supplements, selling of online courses where you'll maybe like watch an hour of video and then have access to like a discussion platform and some readings or like workout advice and community. I think that's definitely the way that people make money in this space. And it's getting worse and worse. Guys who used to just sell advice are now like, okay, well, we need to defeat Marxist China by spending only on these no-name brand goods. And it's basically a form of Amway, like Tupperware parties and kind of getting people to buy into these companies that essentially sell you an idea to then just get you to switch where you buy your cleaning products from or where you buy your household staples from. Hang on, that's a woman thing. Hey, sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, it turns out being alpha involves... <laughs> this is appropriation. I do honestly think you've kind of hit the nail on the head, Kelly. So much of the stuff that they're selling. I remember not long ago being the staple of kind of, yeah, I guess, new age inspired women. Like all of the kind of like vitamins and meditation practices and even some of the bit more woolly stuff like grounding and yeah, tanning your balls, which yeah, I was talking to Julian the other day about how that was like a new age kind of hippie practice of called sunning your yoni. So they've literally taken this yeah, hippie-ish kind of practice and turned it into an alpha masculinity ritual. There's a lot of borrowing and just changing the aesthetic. What is the story with sigma males? So we're familiar with alpha males and beta males, but increasingly I hear about sigma males. Who are these guys? I mean, this was such, to me, this was such a transparent attempt at self-soothing that I I'm honestly shocked the Manosphere or anti-feminist networks fell for it in the way that they did. So essentially, yeah, the standard Manosphere hierarchy was alpha and beta males, right? And beta males are a bit more quiet, a bit more introverted, struck out with women a bit more, whereas alpha men were supposed to be the life of the party, could walk into any room and get any chick to sleep with him, had dominated other men as well, had kind of this mastery of everyone around him. And I guess what happened was lots of the users of these sites became increasingly aware that that was not them. 
and I guess also had no interest in becoming that man. So what they invented was a new form of male, which is just as good as Alpha, but actually prefers to spend all of his time on the computer. (laughs) (laughs) But it's still really cool because it's not that he can't impress people and be the life of the party. It's just that he doesn't want to. You can't fire me for masculinity. I quit. Yeah, exactly. The Joker model almost, where it's like, well, it kind of relates also to these four archetypes or whatever. So there's like king, warrior, magician, and lover. And I think like Sigma think of themselves more as like a magician lover. So they kind of dominate, but not in the obvious way of like brawn and insane self-confidence and kind of dominating everybody in conversation and being the loudest and the biggest. It's more like, yeah, we find a way to still not be betas. One of the sad things about the idea of an alpha male is just like, there's lots of people who have personalities or body types or dispositions where like that's just not going to work. So yeah, finding this like second outlet allows a lot more people to stay connected to this like shitty way of thinking of things, but it's not like think of themselves as pathetic and and constantly in need of self-improvement. So I also work this manosphere sometimes and a lot of it honestly just strikes me as funny. I'm not sure if that's the right take, but I do look at the video that was on the Tucker special of that guy tanning his balls. I do look at this video of the liver king shouting, why eat a vegetable when you can eat a testicle? And I'm like, is that supposed to be funny? Are they being outlandish on purpose for attention? Or am I supposed to take that with a straight face? No, definitely. I think they're definitely leaning into the comedy of it all, do you know? Because they're trying to perform in a saturated social media market where there's just hundreds and hundreds of guys who are saying the same thing, selling much the same product. They have to be extreme and they have to be kind of goofy. It just helps. So I think the caricature nature of it is very much built into the business plan. It's also a model we saw ascend in politics with Trump, right? Where it's like, oh, he can't possibly say that. Or, oh, he can't possibly mean that. But it's still very funny that someone is saying that, that that someone in a position or on a TV show or on a debate stage that you thought was like just a a place where seriousness kind of reigned, that this person is being so outrageous, so cartoonish or whatever. And the kind of big bet was like, if we get that guy, this candidate up there, we'll beat them easily. And then it's like, well, no, actually, it turns out that now that everything is just image, everything is just flattened in the screen. These are the things that pop out and they can people can have a relationship with it where they both think it's funny and ridiculous. But they're also like, yeah, let's go. This is disrupting some of the people that piss me off or pissed off about this. And also they sometimes actually just convince themselves that like when they're looking at Trump, they're looking at this like alpha dominant figure. I mean, Elliot Hulse is this kind of like strength training guy and he's really like kind of a hulking guy. And he, his whole sell on Trump early on was like, oh, I think women and like beta males don't like him because he reminds them of their daddy. Like they think Trump is daddy or whatever. And I mean, I think all of us kind of live with that. We're looking at content that we don't always necessarily think is entirely serious, but it's still attractive us perhaps and we can kind of we're able to maintain those two levels concurrently where i'll vote for trump but i also think he's ridiculous or liver king is very funny but also there's something to it i think annie was mentioning that earlier yeah i think that absurdity i mean you saw it with the alt-right as well this kind of deliberate irony this ironic effect which 
was both a recruitment tactic and like a defense mechanism. It sort of meant that even if they were saying these kind of hideous, kind of quite plainly hateful things, it kind of allowed them to this sort of leaning back mode whenever they got too much heat for it, where you're just ridiculous for taking me seriously. Can't you see? Just a clown. I'm behaving like a clown. But it also meant that that stuff could proliferate really easily as a recruitment tactic in communities who might otherwise have not shown an interest or clamped down on it very quickly because it's all memes, it's all jokes. And I think there's a similar effect going on here. It's just a really clever tactic, I suppose, for someone who wants to game social media algorithms. And if everything is aesthetic and we are so far away from the lovers of power, then yeah, we might as well make it fun. If, if the game is entirely aesthetic, then, you know, relying on a cartoon frog to like identify with others and kind of define your side of things in whether it be the culture war or like political sphere in a more serious meaning of the word, then that's fine because actually this is all a game. And I think that is actually not entirely incorrect that this is all a kind of aesthetic game that we're playing for the kind of face of something that already has entered a kind of decline that people feel like they, they just can't possibly reverse. I think it's like trying to reverse the forces of history or the forces of cultural decline or stuff like women voting and feminism, just things that, I mean, of course, I'm not saying that that's not under threat, that there's no possibility of like losing some of these rights. But in a greater sense, I think there's an acceptance of like, yeah, it's really just a game for like what the empire's face will look like because there's no control over the actual things behind it. We can't like reindustrialize these cities. We can't make, we'll never stop like politicians from doing like insider trading and taking all this corporate money. We're never going to like wrest control of this kind of like ruling class. And so it's like, well, yeah, might as well kind of make it fun and piss off my opponent, right? Because that's a certain like visceral satisfaction. Well, Julian and Annie, you've certainly given me a lot to think about for my own masculine identity. <laughs> I'll be pondering where I fit in into the warrior, king, lover, magician, podcaster universe for a while now. And once again, that's Julian Field and Annie Kelly of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, well worth a subscription. You can find their Man Clan series at patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous. Annie and Julian, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And now for Fresh Hell, the segment where we talk about the oncoming dystopia coming to you later this week. Okay, so this is a special election edition of Fresh Hell, and I'm calling my shots here. I'm, I'm Babe Ruth pointing for the fences on what is going to be some of our election fraud conspiracy theories. So even if Republicans just totally sweep the Senate, totally sweep the House, there's going to be one or two races they lose, and inevitably... Those will become the focus of allegations of election fraud and malfeasance. So in this case, one thing that I think is going to be really hot on election day and going forward is sort of tech-related conspiracy theories. Now, this should be no surprise because we've seen people like Mike Lindell focus on the somewhat vaporous idea of packet captures. And then he sort of puts up like a map of the world and he's like, look at the lines going back and forth. <laughs> But there's been some interesting tech stuff going on. So for example, I was reading Telegram today and there were a lot of 
conspiracy theorists urging their fans to be like checking the Wi-Fi networks on their phones to go vote so that you look and if it says Dominion Venezuela election fraud unit. <laughs> Chavez online password is <laughs> Chavez Marxist Leninism. What I find interesting about that is there's kind of this like the obsession with like can't the voting machines connect to Wi-Fi is a big one and so that actually I think has led to some of these incidents of election clerks and their allies illegally tampering with election machines in an attempt to prove that there's a Wi-Fi connection or generally like people freaking out if there is Wi-Fi at their polling place at all. And then, but on a deeper level, this relates to the occasional right-wing freakouts over like joke Wi-Fi network names. I think of the right-wing activist who noticed the classic tired joke of naming your Wi-Fi network FBI surveillance van. And <laughs> she noticed that was near her apartment and she was like, the FBI is out of control. They're after me. Yeah, absolutely. So there's this whole sort of pseudo-technical jargon around elections right now. And you see it on Telegram and it makes you feel insane because no one actually knows what they're talking about, but they have 800 references to things like Raspberry Pi, small technical devices that I'm sure these people don't actually know how to use. And they're starting to roll those out for this election. They're starting to encourage each other to do your own researching and do your own forensic analysis of what's going on in your voting district. And I do not trust a single one of these people to do it accurately. So of course you get a million different dubiously conducted investigations all of them spelled out on Telegram for maximum fear-mongering and uncertainty. Yeah, so you mentioned the Raspberry Pi thing. As you said, I mean, these are, I'm not a tech guy myself, but these are kind of the kind of things like Reddit guys get to turn their Christmas lights on and off or whatever. And this idea that these are these kind of customizable tech platforms. So some QAnon people have been like, all right, guys, we need to outfit these Raspberry Pis so they can like jam the signals around the polling place. So on one hand, the best case scenario, the Raspberry Pi stuff doesn't work and people end up kind of staring at their $50 toys in the parking lot outside the polling site. On the other hand, I think you could see this ending more disastrously if it does work somehow and like jams everyone's cell phone signal or something. And we get kind of one of these hapless voter fraud arrests of one of these sleuths. So Kelly, do you have a chance to read this New York Times story about these sort of the telegram communities where people sort of gamify hunting for mules. Yeah, absolutely. So this is by Shira Frankel at the Times, and it's a look into these really kind of disturbing, gamified, vigilante communities where people will park themselves outside of polling places, scan local voting rolls for names and people who they think just aren't quite right. People who they think that might actually be a mule. And they take this baseless vigilantism and they crowdsource it. They chuck it out to the group and encourage other people to join them in their quest and hunt down these suspicious characters who, hey, just might have Latino last names. And I think you're sort of hitting at what's actually going on here. So these groups and they word points, oh, you caught a nonprofit that buses people to the polls and the implication is that that's illegal. Or you caught a mule, which is, as you said, I think usually a person of color. And so they go, oh, you get a thousand points, you caught them. This all ties into this era we're in of this sort of citizen, amateur, voter fraud sleuth. Of course, we think of the, the people camped outside of polling places in military gear or accusing people of being mules. Another aspect the Times story points out that, of course, this is coming after the QAnon era where this idea that the individual can be so powerful and do your own research. You personally, by just like kind of staring hard enough at something, you can figure it out and find this voter fraud. I think also in 2020, I think that left people with a feeling of like, if only someone was there in the room or someone was videotaping the crucial moment of voter fraud, if only someone had videotaped when they were unloading the bamboo ballots from China, all of this could have been avoided. So I really think we're going to see a lot of 
it on election day. But I also think, unfortunately, like just hard to see how this goes away in the next few election cycles. Yeah, not at all. I mean, we're still fighting lawsuits from the more limited instances where this happened last time around. In Texas, there was a guy who was run off the road because someone who was a paid contractor for an election sleuth company. Absolutely insane story. Wild, wild. And I think he was a refrigerator repairman just doing his job, got run off the road by this ex-cop who thought he was tracking down the Hillary Clinton cabal. I, I don't see how we get through this election cycle without that happening multiple times over. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.